Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. We've got a fun-filled, action-packed episode this week in which we talk about... Brexit! And in the back half, Kate and Tom talk about... Childish Gambino! And then Helen and Andy Zaltzman talk about... Satire! Hello Stephen, I'm delighted to be back. I'm less delighted about the fact that Brexit is still happening. I was slightly hoping you might have, I mean not you personally, but someone might have fixed that while I was away. What are the big headlines that I have missed? So the big headlines are that MPs have given themselves more opportunities to say what it is they don't want. There is now a kind of fairly reliable majority to kind of go... We don't want this, right? Where, where this is what? The Brexit deal or no deal Brexit or... So either May's deal or no... But there, is there a reliable majority for EA after soft Brexit? There is not a reliable majority for basically... So by the time <laughs> most of our listeners listen to this, they will have had the indicative vote. The indicative votes, I think, are not going to... Uh, nothing then, is going to pass. They're not going to magically solve everything. Well, I mean, they could solve something if something won an indicative vote, but... The problem with the system that they've chosen to, to, to do the indicative votes on is that they hugely incentivise, and we saw this with Lord's reform, right, where if you have indicative votes and there are no consequences to behaving badly in indicative votes, then, of course, what you do is you just vote to reduce the chances of anything that you could live with happening in order to get what you really, really want. Like Ultimately, the only way indicative votes are going to, would, would be useful would be if you f- had some way of... So, I mean, I had a very frustrating conversation with an MP this morning in which they were very annoyed because they felt that I was saying that that people in their political tendency were behaving in a stupid way. And, of course, the problem was I did think people in their political tendency were behaving in a stupid way because their argument essentially only made sense if you assumed that they were the only MP in in Parliament, right? It's one of those things where it's like, okay, like, I I can agree with you. Right, actually what you need is a kind of ranking system, right, where you say, I want customs union single market but i'm willing to accept x y z right yeah. now actually you need to have a you need to have kind of like the dehont system maybe no you don't need yeah, you basically need av right then what mps ought to have to do like is, a knockout right yeah, but it was actually mandatory preferential voting you yeah. shouldn't you shouldn't be allowed not to preference something so even if you give night you know no deal your you know your seventh preference the only way it will be resolved is if mps are forced to actually sit there and go okay, well, this is what I, I want to not want. So, I mean, to take the example of this conversation, I uh, essentially was said, said to them, I was like, well, look, you know, 
you you've said you don't want no deal why would you then not vote for these and they said well they said look the only thing to stop no deal is to vote for the withdrawal agreement and i just think my colleagues need to stop messing around Mm -hmm. and do that and it's one of those things where i just think fair enough right it is mystifying to me that there is a class of labor mp who will not vote for a second referendum what don't want uh, free movement to continue but won't vote for the withdrawal agreement and it's just like guys i've got big news for you the withdrawal agreement is the only available Brexit if you assume those... Um, right, because it's the only thing that means that you then move on to the political declaration, which can then be fussed about with at will. But it's uh, the only thing that provides for a transition deal and an orderly exit. But also, even in terms of the political declaration stuff, which is about the future relationship, if you're a Labour MP who doesn't want free movement, doesn't want to cancel Brexit, well then, you you want May's deal, right? From a policy perspective, May's deal does everything that you say you purport to This is want. what I think is driving, is it Henry Newman from Open Europe, slowly mad, where he keeps going, why don't Labour just, I vote, for, like it's got all the things they want, but I guess it comes down to the fact that no one, and this applies as much to her own side, no one trusts Theresa May's either desire to deliver whatever she's promised or actually fundamentally her ability to deliver whatever's promised. So we're recording this when there's chatter that she's going to go and make a big announcement to the 1922 committee. But I have to say that Theresa May's record on making big announcements and those big announcements having anything interesting to say is not a not a stellar one, is it? No, I mean, also... In terms of Theresa May and big announcement, Theresa May is a person who promised in December that she would not fight another election. Mm-hmm. Right? And now she's kind of faintly going, whoa, Maybe if Parliament yeah, votes on either. But she also promised that we were definitely going to leave on March the yeah, I mean, 29th. Like, you know, I mean, the list of things that Theresa May... She, before she promised she wasn't going to fight another election, she promised she wasn't going to fight an election the first time before she fought that election. Yeah. Okay, so the, one of the weird things that happened was that statement that she made last week, which I watched and was horrified and baffled by. You've written in your column this week that there's a piece of media management. It's there's a reasonable idea behind what they do, which is pop it, you know, put a Theresa May statement out at eight thirty. The build up of it goes on the six o'clock news. We what's she gonna say? And then the ten o'clock news then feels obliged to do. Oh, she said words and yeah. didn't fall over. And the actual content of what she says is, is sort of slightly irrelevant. But in this sense, it wasn't, right? Because her basically using these tropes of, like, it's MPs blocking Brexit. I just want to get on with it. But it's only the other the MPs who are holding me back. Really upset people like Lisa Nandy. It's upset George Freeman. It upset, you Poor know... sheriff. Yeah. But, I mean... So, she really needed, right? And couldn't afford to lose. Yeah, I mean, so... On the one hand, I completely understand why MPs feel that a Prime Minister and former Home, Home Secretary who, who sees all of this stuff about radicalisation in her, you know, in her national security capacity, literally parroting what you know, could almost be a keyword search of the, the violent emails that MPs get, is deeply distasteful. The weird thing is, is this is not the first time Theresa May has done this deeply distasteful routine. I, complete, I basically both 100% understood why MPs found it annoying but was also surprised that... They were surprised? That they were annoyed, yeah. It was one of those things where it was just like, yeah, but she's done this highly irresponsible use of her bully pulpit on several previous occasions, and everyone's kind of gone like, oh, is she talking about betrayal again? Yeah, what's on the other channel? Whereas this this one did really annoy MPs. It's, it's basic, right? If you want to pass any Brexit deal, you need to get a sizable chunk of Labour voters, Labour MPs, to vote for you which means that you need to lower the political cost to Labour of doing so. Right, but we've been having this conversation for like a year now, and I saw another quote from someone today saying that the problem is that, of course, Theresa May's always felt she could get this through on Tory votes alone. And you kind of want to go, what point in the bit where she lost her majority 
and had to bung loads of money to the DUP, who've got their own incredibly tight set of policy asks at race, around the you know Northern Irish border. Did she not think I can't get the you know if, if even like one Tory MP defects, it begins to become a headache. Like as soon as you get a dozen, it's insuperable. I just don't know. I just feel like that bit in um, in Zoolander where he's just like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I just don't understand why what was quite obvious to you and most people who vaguely followed this was not obvious to, to one T May. I mean, this is the. So one of the other things I write about this week is the fact that Conservative MPs, you know, who used to, under Cameron and I assume under every other previous leader, used to have people call them and go, look, what is, what's, what's Downing Street's view on, you know, like, what, what, what's yeah. the leadership saying to you, have now basically taken to, you know, when they meet journalists, random strangers, people who work in public affairs, going... What do you think is going to happen? Because Downing Street is so uncommunicative, closed off, you know, only takes people who are, you know, like basically, you know, like you've sort of got to like join the mob in order to be taken into her confidence. But then like Richard Harrington, who's one of the junior ministers who resigned this week, is, has known her since university, right? Damien Green has known her since university. There's, there's the number of people who've sort of known Theresa May for like 30 years and still don't seem to have a kind of reliable insight into her thinking is... There's been loads of incidents in the last couple of weeks where the government has published something, like it's just come out, they've not pre-warned anybody about it, right? And it's another thing that's added to the kind of soup of misery and, and angst. And I thought Julian Smith, the chief whip, was supposed to have been pretty angry with her last week, right? And kind of grumbling in the tea rooms was, um, was yeah. heard. Yeah, so um, Katie Balls wrote a very good piece on this in The Eye. Yeah, the, the, the whips in general are very angry with Downing Street because... Essentially, you know, if you they went around going, you know, look, don't you better vote for this. If you don't, bad things will happen. And then it emerged that someone in Downing Street had said, look, just abstain. Right. So Amber Rudd and a couple of other Remain cabinet ministers abstained on meaningful vote two. So on the-, the vote to take no deal off the table yeah. in heavy inverted commas. Okay, so the, okay, the one the other thing I want to talk to you about, which is I think, so I think that Theresa May's speech was very worrying in terms of she's exactly, as you say, using that kind of populist rhetoric. The most, the biggest reaction I had when I talked about this on Twitter was people like, wow, she's an unpopular populist. It's like this new category that she's created all for herself. But then Suella Braverman, Ni Fernandez, light, leading light of the ERG, my former Question Time sparring partner, where I have many reaction gifts sent to me by my friends of me making what faces at her, uh, went on Newsnight last night and said that she's fighting... No, so today... Cu- she's cultural just, Marxism? She was what? at a press conference for, like, the Bruges group, which is basically... I just think of that film In Bruges, but it's not related no, to No, it's that, not for it? people who like the film In Bruges. Right. It's for people who like the Bruges speech by Margaret Thatcher, you know, the we've not rolled back the frontiers of the state here in Britain to see it reimposed at a European level. If you were going to have a group based around any political speech, which, which one would it be? Oh, well, I think I'd probably question. have the a Labour Council speech. Oh, like the yeah, I, uh, scuttling round the scuttling round group. So where where is? I mean, obviously it's going to be a Blair speech because I'm that much of a cliche. Where is Blair's 2006 final conference speech? Oh, that oh that yeah, that's one. like a really good conference speech. Or oh. actually, Ed Miliband's like One what? Nation. Ed, so I Dude. I I will strongly maintain that like one of the, the so my theory is always that conference the conference speech is an innately bad genre, right? So even like the a Labour Council, a Labour Council, most of the speech is pretty bad, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it has that classic like conference speech thing, and there's a like you know like and thank you to Gladys who's yeah. retiring <laughs> after 30 years of service to our There's movement. a lot of handing out of carriage and, you know, and, and like and you know like here, and yeah. you know the Tories. What about them, eh? Oh, and here's some joke about the Liberal SDP alliance. Oh, by the way, here's my serious point. 
I like that Blair one where he does the thing where he acknowledged that everyone knew that he hated Gordon Brown. He said, at least I didn't have to worry about Cherie running off with the man next door, which might have been the sweaty speech. Actually, no, that so could that... be the name of your group. It could be the sweaty group. No, so that was 2006 leadership speech, which is the one where he goes, you know, if we can't take apart this Tory party, we shouldn't be in government. Yeah, we shouldn't be in politics even. Yeah, it's the, you know, we spent the 1970s nationalising and unnationalising the steel industry and the British public spent the 70s wondering why both parties were doing that. And it's just like a very good, lucid bit of speech giving and actually does use the length properly. Like, I think, you know, the, there are basically two ways of dealing with the conference speech challenge. Do you know what? I think this might... This, we might Maybe I'll have a conference the... speech group where okay, I would just get people <laughs> together to discuss conference speeches and whether or not they succeeded or failed. Yeah, I think, I mean, it'd probably be wildly popular. What did Suella Fernandez say to the In Bruges group? Though? So what she said to, you know, this group of people who love Margaret Thatcher's speeches and Colin Farrell films was, you know, our mission, I'm paraphrasing, was to, is to, to defeat socialism and cultural Marxism. Wow, it's like being back in the room with Jordan Peterson again. That's one of those right-wing and, and memes, and you kind of go, eh, what, what, what is actually, what, what do you think she means by it? Because, I mean, I've walked into a, a, a universe in which the Brexiteer backbenchers who went to see Theresa May apparently referred to themselves as the Grand Wizards, and Laura Kinsberg of the BBC had to clarify with the tweet was no reference to anything else intended, and you're like, what, like... Did they think they were like Harry... Regards my previous statement about the group. <laughs> yeah, I says, you do not, under any circumstances, got to <laughs> hand it to them. <laughs> but, you know, either they didn't know that's a phrase associated with the KKK, in which case they should stop cranking on about their history degrees all the time, or they did, and that is bad banter from an all-white, all-male group that went to see Theresa May at the weekend. Yeah, I mean, I also, I think... The, so the thing is about the Grand Wizards thing is, right, is... In another way, right, the best case scenario is at a time of intense national this thing's right, if you if you take if you take the assurance, if you even if you if you if you assume it's true, the defense for yeah. the ERG is at a time of intense national importance and crisis, people are giving themselves the nickname of wizards. I mean, in an odd way, right, at least I can't believe I'm actually doing the say what you like about national socialism, at least it's an ethos, but <laughs> but at least, like, nicknaming yourself half of the clan is like, okay, you're nasty, but, you know, you've got some kind of ethos, I guess. No, Whereas I otherwise just, you're going, yeah. A-A-A, we're wizards. It's just like, I mean, guys, like, maybe you should take this, this, this national yeah. moment with something resembling seriousness. Do your jobs. Yeah. Um, no, it's like nicknaming your own penis the Terminator. It's like, it was one of those things you shouldn't Well, that's give... kind of how I feel about the Malthouse Compromise. When people go like, what people are increasingly calling the Malthouse Compromise, it's like, no, that's not how a coinage works, right? <laughs> like, I, if I started saying that on every podcast we had an Excelsior moment and we started selling mugs about, like, what's your Excelsior moment, that doesn't work. Yeah. That's not how nomen... Like, you can't self-nickname. You're yeah. just going to do Big Lebowski quotes. Yeah, um, Asian-American is the preferred nomenclature. Yeah. Right. Well, we can have the Big Lebowski group that could be our group. So what is cultural Marxism, according to her? So she basically said, you know, it's true, we are in a culture war. Now, the term cultural Marxism is a anti-Semitic right-wing trope about the... Sort of like in- a Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy, isn't it? That's yeah, sort of- basically to kind of, you know, like lefty eyes the, you know, the, the world through, you know, like, you know, putting too many women in Star Wars. Right, I remember phoning up the BNP press office for a quote. This is bad old days have done, and they gave me the press office gave me a lecture on two things. One of which was why I was not planning to have children to repopulate the white race, and the other one was about the fact that, of course, you're in a university. University lecturers, they're all Marxists, and I was like, I, I mean, I don't. I mean, they've got you know, 
moustaches, some of them, but that's about as far as it goes. Yeah. And I mean, I think, right, so in some ways, yeah, I'm increasingly of a view that we should like, the not so we should stop, that no, basically, because there's this kind of, I think, sort of arid debate about, like, is she herself someone who is anti-Semitic or is she merely repeating anti-Semitic tropes, which obviously has been the, like, arid debate about the, <laughs> yeah. the Labour Party for the past however many years it's now been. I basically think in both cases, right, it, it doesn't actually matter whether or not... Like, ultimately, if I if I come to your house and I've got, like, a huge heap of dog poo on my shoe and I tread it round the house, it doesn't matter if before I went in I've, like, stamped my feet and then, like, sat there artfully smearing dog poop all over your, your carpet. Regardless, there is dog poop on your carpet. It doesn't really matter whether or not people are knowingly... Uh, you know, putting anti-Semitic, conspiracist. You I know, think yeah, that's the bit that more right worries me is that is right. it's just parroting a language of a certain kind of YouTube conspiracy theorist in a way that's actually ultimately meaningless. Like it's not a it's not a thought through critique in a way that actually is you know any like I'm, I'm open to the ideas about viewpoint diversity not being large enough in universities and blah 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 blah. But it is like one of those dog whistle things that you just as soon as someone says it, you just think step away from the YouTube recommends bar. I mean, it really... Yeah, I mean, so... And this is, you know, a kind of... Yet another example of the kind of utter porousness of the, you know, the fringe and the... What used to be the Tory mainstream, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've ended it by the week by saying that everything is bad. Although I guess it it means that we can at least look forward to the point where a Conservative cabinet minister shouts, triggered cucks, (laughs) while throwing some government bill down at the tax box. (laughs) Which, while that will be a signal that we are all about to be sent off to a gulag somewhere, it will at least be briefly funny when a 40-something-year-old man says the words... Oh, what, Jeremy Corbyn, he's such a soy boy. Yeah. And you'll go, you, you, sir, it is you who is the soy boy. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And now I'm joined by Andy Zaltzman, whose show Satirist for Hire will be at the Soho Theatre from the 26th to the 28th of March. You're also co-host of the Bugle podcast, and I have to say a veteran also of the News Quiz, which I enjoy doing, and the virulently right-wing Radio 4 panel <laughs> show. <laughs> I have a question, which is one of the things I've been thinking about this week. Has Brexit killed comedy? How hard is well, it to do Brexit-related comedy? It's hard to do Brexit-related comedy with originality and optimism i think it can be hard to be constructive about it it can be hard to be funny about it and now you know three years on from the start you know the start of the referendum campaign basically to find anything original is a real challenge that said you're gonna give it a damn good go yes uh, and uh, you know every week some new angle will open up there's always fresh Okay. What is what is still funny? What things are because I have things that I still find funny. I still find 
Michael Gove ruining Boris Johnson's leadership campaign funny. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to stop finding that funny. Well, I think Michael Gove still finds that funny as well. Doesn't matter the look on his face. He's in a sort of he has a perma smirk. Yeah, he? He just every so often goes, yeah, 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 I did that. Yeah, that was quite funny. He was on his way to his own campaign launch. Yeah, yeah, yeah and then I did it, and he had to go through the campaign launch anyway, even though it wasn't a campaign launch anymore. But what else is what else is still still tickles? I guess you? there's an element to which just the whole unending incompetence of it becomes almost that comedy of awkwardness, which has obviously been very prevalent in comedy in the last 15, 20 years. And Brexit's almost tapping into that. But isn't and one of the problems that they're sort of self-satirising? I mean, I think of Jacob Rees-Mogg, and apparently, you know, people who were at university with him say it's, you know, he's it's a persona. Like, he's acting. Like, he's sort of like a one of the world's great method actors, really. Right. I mean, he's taken it a long way, if that's the case. He's truly the Daniel Day-Lewis of the Tory party. (laughs) He's been living in role for a really long time. I want to see what else he can do now. I think he's taken this character as far as it should go. Do you think he's mid-career Hugh Grant, actually? What he really needs to do now is just play a few... Well, I suppose he'd go the opposite way to Hugh Grant. He needs to play a few romantic leads. Romantic leads or professional boxers (laughs) from the wrong side of the tracks. (laughs) For one I'd last love fight. to see that. I would love to see I'd that. I'd love to see him really train realistically for it as well. Yeah, exactly. Like Christian Bale, he'd just come back and suddenly he'd be super... Well, I had a long-running theory that was aired by a friend of the podcast, Duncan Robinson, that underneath the three-piece suits, he's a gym rat. He's just super ripped. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm clean. This is one of the I few things... I want to see his that... tats. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Like he's got... No... Like he's... Yeah, like Dolly Parton. You know that long-running rumour that Dolly Parton is actually covered in tattoos and she just... Maybe that's Jacob... I didn't know that long-running rumour. Yeah. Is that long-running rumour you start? No, a, no, that is a oh. real thing that you will find on the internet that predates okay. me. But I just think Jacob Rees Mummy's got a big sort of spiderweb tattoo that comes up just up to the kind of collar point, right? right. Yeah, and that's why he always wears the suit. You never see him in a t shirt because he's got. Yeah, I reckon it's right to the edge of the collar line and the cuff line with Jacob. <laughs> God knows what's on it. Um... Thor, I think. A collection of <laughs> Norse gods and uh, historical atrocities. Yeah, that would be quite. If he'd got all of the battles of. Britain, if he's got like the normal, con- you know what I mean? Like if he's sort of yeah. kind of essentially like one of those illustrated children's storybooks, that'd be quite quite a Brexity theme yes. to have. Yes, the Battle of Towton, <laughs> I don't, 1461. What the hell happened at the Battle of Towton? Well, the Battle of Towton was the single most violent day of fighting in the history of the British Isles, according to some historians. Between who and who? Well, it was in the Wars of the Roses. It was in 1461. Uh. And the reason it's relevant to Brexit is because it was on the 29th of March. Huh. And I thought it was a, just a perfect anniversary you know, for Britain to, to, to leave the EU. and anniversary of a really pointless and incredibly destructive... Between two sides um, that no conflict. one now can really tell yeah, apart. It seemed almost too appropriate, don't you think? That's beautiful. Yeah, okay, so he's probably got that. that. He's probably got the Battle of Waterloo, maybe on over one oh, nipple. Yeah. Maybe like, that's the end of the telescope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you'd like to write in with more suggestions of other tattoos Jacob Rees-Mogg can get, please, please do. <laughs> okay, what is the least funny thing about Brexit? What is the thing that most depresses you about Brexit? Oh, just the next six decades, I think. Yeah, I find that hard to be uh, positive about. And the look in my children's face, faces when uh, they're going to have to live out other people's dreams on their behalf when they are long since gone. So, um, <laughs> right, <laughs> so good. That. Well, that's that's that covered. <laughs> tell me about I don't tell me about the premise of the show then. So people just you, I did read the show and I think is this Andy's way of just not having to do any prep for a show? Oh uh, no, quite the opposite in fact. Right. So it's a show where people can email me requests for what is in the show. So it's called Satirist for Hire. People email me requests. This is a special Brexit-themed run. When I just do it as a general show, I tend to get a real mixture of you know, big political stories from all around the world and personal vendettas and complete irrelevances and quite a lot about cricket. 
So it's quite a nicely balanced show like that. The Brexit show is it's the first time I've sort of I've done a, a themed version. Actually, no, no, I did a World Cup one last last summer. But apart from that, right, um, all the major historical events. Yes. Yeah. So in fact, it may, means that rather than just being able to do the material I already have, I have to write new stuff, which as a comedian is a really stupid thing to do. But uh, fun shows to do, and people seem to enjoy them. And I also take orders from the audience as they're coming into the room before the show. So there's um, a challenge. And, it keeps it fresh. I mean, not to draw the veil back, but, you know, when we do the news quiz and they send you the to- the topics you might be thinking about, which ones are the ones that you look at and you think, God, which poor bastard's going to get that one? <laughs> I hope that's not me. I have to say there are some times where I just, they kind of go like, oh, let's do the bloody Sunday inquiry. And you think, ah, uh, yes, this has um, the potential to be career-endingly offensive. Yes. <laughs> yeah, anything that involves deep tragedy is uh, tricky comedically. Yeah, not necessarily impossible, but obviously there's certain topics that have to be handled with extreme sensitivity. Donald uh, Trump is that? Do you well, like a Trump, Trump gag? Hate a Trump gag? Trump is unavoidable comedically if you do any sort of political comedy because he's almost questioning sort of all the certainties that were previously held. I think, and in terms of how democracy functions, what it is for, and how realistic it is to expect it to work that said there's the same problem with Bre- with brexit in that everyone is doing trump stuff and it's not just true in, in stand-up but obviously tv shows particularly american tv shows stuff on the internet there are probably billions of trump-based mm. comedians now whether they're professional or not so to find an original angle on trump is a challenge and i did a show a couple of years ago where the only way i could find of treating trump originally was by printing out his brain on a 3D printer. And I unveiled it, and it was a, a cauliflower on a tripod. <laughs> and then I chopped up him speaking, and I, st- I stuck electrodes into the cauliflower brain to change the makeup of his brain, and turned him into a cricket fan. And I chopped up his speeches, so I had Donald Trump talking about 1920s cricketers. <laughs> and that was, just, that was how far I had to go to find, to be the sure that... The body no line one, series, so, he's got strong yeah, opinions yeah, on. Well, he did have some body line stuff. Um, and... Um, that was as far as I had to go, to make sure that I could be sure that I was doing Trump material in a way that no one else was. I was pretty confident no one else would make Donald Trump talk about 1920s cricket. Then now the only bit of Trump comedy that I still enjoy, I think, is... I think he hasn't done one for a while. Peter Serafinowitz was doing the camp Trump, which I enjoyed yes. enormously, and doing voiceovers of him. Or the person who just slows down all of his speeches to half speed, which then <laughs> you get the drunk logic of them is matched by somebody who actually sounds drunk as well. Yeah. It just sounds like so much like the kind of person who'd hecked you outside a kebab shop at 3am that I kind of feel like I, I now hear him in that tone even when he's doing his normal yes. speech. So having spent a lot of time over probably a year or so and a couple of different live shows and some podcasts chopping up Trump speaking to make him talk largely about cricket. I found it's in a way quite a nice way to listen to him talk now because I fundamentally disagree with everything he says as I'm sure many listeners to the New Statesman podcast do. A lot of big Trump fans in the house, yeah. But now I find when I listen to him, I don't necessarily listen to the words. I listen to what I think I can make him say with those words. The thing is, I think he would actually be really good on Test Match Special, because the kind of prime quality you have to have is just to be able to, like, look at a pigeon in the outfield and riff on it for 15 minutes or whatever it is. I mean, he's got no filter on it at all, right? So he could... I mean, he wouldn't know anything about cricket, which might at some point be... But then... (laughs) 
And get him on in a rain break. That's what you're saying. Yeah, just, I so, just, yeah. I just think he's got an incredible ability, like a childlike quality that you can just point him at something and he will just start talking about it, which yes. actually is something I feel is quite highly valued in cricket yes. commentary. Yeah, if only he was talking in that way, but no one was listening, then it would be fine. Well, that was one of the best theories ever. Was the idea that they should construct an entire replica White House and just put him in it, and would he kind actually? Of Truman Show. Type. Yeah, like yeah. how long would it take him to realise that he wasn't actually president? As long as you gave him access to a fake well, I think Twitter that, I mean, account. This, this is my compromise solution for Brexit. Um, right. Is that the the cheapest? And I think it's the cheapest solution anyone has suggested, and it's the solution that pleases will please all sides. And that is virtual reality headsets for every single person in the United Kingdom. Yep. And you get an app on your phone. You put your phone in this virtual reality headset. Yeah. They're about 20 quid each. Most people have smartphones now. Yeah. And you can set it to whatever type of Brexit or no Brexit you want. So you can live out the rest of your life in a virtual reality that tells you things or how you want them to be, which is essentially only one or two steps removed from how we consume media now anyway. It's really just formalising the whole process. Yeah. And it will make you feel faintly nauseous, yeah. but then the news does that anyway. Exactly. Right. So, so rather than it costing, you know, it's cost, it costing us five hundred trillion or whatever figure you want to make up, which is all part of politics these days, twenty quid each for say we'll need a hundred million headsets to cover the current population and the future population. I know they're not technically part of this; they're just going to have to <laughs> suck it up. If they wanted to have a say in it, they should have had the foresight to have been born by. 1998 yeah. 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 Yeah, they, yeah, they shouldn't be so lazy hanging around not being born just gametes lazy gametes yeah I can't believe that you haven't made money selling this idea to someone really I can't believe you saved up this uh, an idea yeah. of this level for the New Statesman podcast but well, yeah, well, if everyone who listens to this profits. just, just yeah. goes out and tells one other person then yeah. by basically we'll have this wrapped up by next Wednesday yeah. Andy Zaltzman thank you very much the show is Satirist for Hire it's at the Soho Theatre Hello and welcome to the back half with me, Tom. And me, Kate. This is your monthly bit of culture on the New Statesman podcast. Your tacky bit tacked on at the end. And we will, of course, be serving you up a non-anniversary later in the in the segment. That's our non-significant anniversary of a non-significant cultural event. Well, often a cultural event that's significant to us and... Yeah, funny that, isn't it? Who else? We're not sure, but perhaps you can let us know. But first, Kate, we went to see Childish Gambino at London's O2 Academy. We did, and if you saw, if you managed to catch him on this tour, you will have been told that you've just got a ticket for the last ever Childish Gambino tour, because, of course, within just a few months of becoming an international sensation, he is retiring his musical persona, or so he says. It's funny, he, he had sort of haunted my inbox as a music journalist for so many years and his name was so annoying, I never clicked <laughs> on any of them. And in my head, he was he was the same person as Chili Gonzalez, right. who is the Canadian piano player, because yeah. they're just both stupid names. And I just looked up and my earliest email goes back to 2011 from Universal and it says... Childish Gambino, one of the most exciting emerging young talents in music, follows the release of his number one on Hype Machine with his eagerly awaited debut and describes him as a, he's getting a growing reputation as one of the freshest and most interesting MCs in hip-hop. And he's, he's 35 now, right? Mm. That was eight, eight years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Uh, so this has been a very long, very long road. And what was very interesting when um, This Is America came out is that when it came out in May last year, it was accompanied with a huge 
New Yorker profile the same day, pretty much, that basically referred to him as Donald Glover rather than Childish Gambino. So the whole thing's been very cleverly done to kind of uh, like a snake sort of shedding its skin. Like just as you as you know who this person is, he will change. Yeah, that that whole This Is America thing was, I think, timed that New Yorker profile. You're right. But also, I think it was the beginning of the second season of Atlanta as well on the same day. And he launched the video as at the same time as he went on Saturday Night Live, in which he described himself as a triple threat. So that's (laughs) actor, musician... Um, and well, actor, musician, and director, and director. yeah. But it, it's brilliant, isn't it? Because you could say that's just a brilliant spin to put on artistic person who's never quite taken off in one <laughs> one particular genre. The way of the modern artist, they've got to do everything, you know, do their own, do their own videos, have their own styling, and all that kind of thing. But yeah, it's um, it's very impressive that he's sort of presumably is going to. I think his quote about retiring, he said. If a lot of things had death clauses in them, we wouldn't have a lot of problems in the world, to be honest. I think endings are good because they force things to get better. So, you know, hmm. I mean, it's a publicity stunt, but at the same time, it's quite quite fun. I think. It's interesting because you can't, in a way, you can't really imagine him topping This Is America in terms of a kind of musical and artistic statement. It's quite hard to beat. And one thing that came out of, of the gig, really, is that although his music is absolutely kind of fizzing with ideas and really fun and really interesting he doesn't have a kind of run of killer pop songs Mm. i mean as you as you pointed out on the night i think like even this is america there isn't that much of a hook there that song would be nothing without the film it's the impact it's the whole impact and what he does so brilliantly in in atlanta as well which we talked about last year on the podcast was it's a very like holistic piece of work like everything is worked out like the music the mm. the style of the direction the writing like he he knows how to make an overall effect with something really really well but can he actually sort of sit down and write a run of pop hits i'm not sure yeah i think when you see him on stage it was it was an interesting show it was com- he was completely alone for most of it on a little kind of catwalk runway thing the first three minutes he's just standing he's just there, standing there yeah. in this kind of contorted position which he you were like he's not actually doing it he's not is, doing he? <laughs> is that <laughs> voice coming out yeah, no yeah. no that voice is like a pre-record yeah but in um this is america he makes this uh, this kind of grotesque stance which is the Jim Crow pose in the cartoons that's sort of the old kind of the way that they used to draw Negroes back in the day he does a lot of that on stage and he does a lot of African styles I think it's called Guara Guara dancing and things and his poses and his the faces that he pulled I think they kind of subliminally make lots of political comment all the time yeah so that you you think I'm watching something quite strange here because I've got this guy who's got a a sort of peroxide blonde beard at the moment which makes him look a lot older than his 35 years and he's in these kind of ill-fitting linen or hemp trousers that and he's got a little bit of a belly and he's kind of doing these strange twisting shapes and you think I am watching something very different this is not it's not watching Drake you know it's not watching a, a sort of a rapper or a hip-hop star poncing around the stage kind of thing. yeah he looked like something washed up from Robinson Crusoe yeah. or like <laughs> Sebastian from The Tempest like staggering about yeah like it was it's a really it's a really strange look especially with the beard and the way he uses his body is as you say completely different to to anyone else like you don't see that many rappers mince no and at one point you know a few points he's sort of mincing up and down the stage and it's also really even beyond rap it's just quite unusual to see a male performer 
so into their own body yeah. in a way like yeah this um, is what it's like you yeah. know it's not perfect here it is but, but everything he does sort of references his own body and he touches it you know like you have to kind of think to sort of people like prince i guess to mm. to think of someone who was so like into their own physique and, and made it such a part of their own performance yeah i was quite surprised by the the lack of i mean i'm sure that he's got ego the size of a planet but as a show it didn't feel particularly hubristic and it didn't feel particularly rap in that sense either he said very early on i never thought this would happen and that ties into this whole idea of the sort of slightly holistic project going on. It's like there's a bit of a window to let the audience in. And we're all agreeing here that, yeah, I made that video last year. It went viral. I possibly didn't expect it. Now I'm on the O2 stage and maybe this is as far as I'm going to get. Maybe I won't be here again sort of thing. So it was like it was more like a kind of let's enjoy this moment mm. together feeling than a, than some sort of huge ego stomping about the stage. He said at the beginning, you know, I want this to be church. You know, he told everyone yeah. to put their phones away, which I read a review from the previous night that said people didn't. But actually people kind of did. They did ours, In, yeah. Immediate, I mean, they slightly crept back. But he really did, he really did take the audience with him yeah he said people are trying to make us feel like we're separated at the moment and we are not we're all together so he was like bringing in british and american politics at the same time there but although he's quite heartfelt in the performance and you know gives it his all and does his kind of big sort of soul falsetto screams and drops to his knees and things and there is an element of that kind of gospel church feel to it He's also, as you said, all the time, like, putting these strange, like, poses and faces. And, like, there's something, although you're drawn in, there's something quite alienating about that in a really good and interesting Mm. way. But, like, he's kind of playing games with the persona the whole time as well, as well as sort of being in the moment of the performance. He did this really clever thing where he went backstage halfway through. Yeah. To, I think literally to change his trousers, didn't yeah. he? put a different pair of sort of white trousers. He also wears that in This Is America video. Yeah. So it's obviously, it's, it's another kind of thing going on. It's supposed to be like, I think in all the endless like readings of the This Is America video, there's supposed to be sort of Civil War era trousers. Yeah, there's that, something that, that looks the, like the slavery the era yeah, about yeah, it, yeah. definitely. The sort of, uh, you know, the kind of light cotton things yeah. that you'd be given to, to wear. And he went, he went backstage and he was like, it was almost kind of pathetic in a way because he was being followed around like he was some massive megastar by these guys with cameras on their shoulders and stuff and then and drinking loads and loads of water and sort of staging this little dialogue that would suggest he wouldn't wasn't going to go back on stage because the audience wasn't noisy enough and he was like shaking his head and every time he shook his head the crowd actually got louder out there on the in the arena so it was quite funny I mean it's very camp sort of pantomime way of like come on a bit more noise yeah I liked that and in a way that reminded me of um seeing Prince at the O2 because he did sort of similar thing like where he'd play those sort of games like he'd just sort of stop he'd kind of run Purple Rain into Kiss or whatever and then stop halfway through and just go oh, I've got too many hits yeah. <laughs> you know it's that nice I was looking to see who'd, who'd reviewed the gig and I saw a piece in the mail and I thought oh, that's really interesting yeah. they've reviewed the Childish Gambino gig but actually when I scrolled down it was exclusive Harry Styles dances backstage with Stella McCartney and Charlene Spiteri as Childish Gambino performs his final London show before leaving with Mystery Girl, <laughs> which they mean Harry Styles is leaving with Mystery Girl. <laughs> really? <laughs> so there's, and there's loads and there's just a series There's so many of, words in that clause. <laughs> there's a series of photos of Harry Styles in his trademark vintage style wearing flared <laughs> trousers and a Baker Boy cap. <laughs> So, yeah, the answer is the male is still not interested in who Childish Gambino is. <laughs> but it was a very mixed crowd age-wise mm. and 
probably quite white it for, was a very white crowd, for a hip hop yeah. gig. But he, I thought that was kind of interesting because he described himself as early on in his career. He described himself as being the only black guy at the Sufjan Stevens concert. Yeah, like, they're cool. It's so it's like a flip. Like, yeah. I wish there'd been a little bit more because there was this amazing band there. There was this this woman jazz piano player, and it's unusual to see. It's still unusual to this day to see female piano players on mm. stage. I don't know why, but you know maybe there's a piece in that. Mm. Um, and there was also this Japanese guitarist who who sort of stepped forward like something out of Guns and Roses and did this with this flying V guitar and did this one solo and then disappeared again. And you got the sense of this wealth of people under the stage, like yeah. in an orchestra <clears> pit. Gospel choirs and all sorts of like amazing smooth soul stuff going on, and you never saw any of them. Yeah, and you imagine that if he was more kind of uh, permanent as a musical mm. entity, then he would be a bit more like Prince, and he would have his band on stage with them all the time, and he'd be like interacting with them. But I guess if this is part of the development of a character, then you know he had to be there by himself. But it was a bit annoying. I was like, I want to see the band. Yeah. yeah, and he's obviously really good at choosing collaborators, like this guy Hiro Murai, who directed mm. This Is America and, and worked on Atlanta. And his next film is directed by Hiro Murai, and it's Donald Glover and Rihanna. Oh, um, mm. it's quite interesting. No, we, well, you mean film as in feature film? Feature yeah, film. So it's a feature film. Yeah. yeah. So he's 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 done lots of like small parts in big big movies things like star wars and spider-man and he was in the martian mm. and he's the voice of simba in the new lion king. i know i was thinking that once uh, you're in the lion king you know that you've made, you've it, made it you yeah. can't go any higher i'm still waiting <laughs> this is america don't catch you slipping now don't catch you slipping now so Kate, it's time for our anniversary. What are we what are we celebrating today? In 2007 on the 30th of March, which makes it 12 years ago. Yeah. The best Will Ferrell film apart from Gosh, possibly gosh. Anchorman was released Blades of Glory about pairs figure state skating starring Will Ferrell and John Hedder who played Napoleon Dynamite. And you and I both like this film very much, don't we? Yeah, we were talking about this. I think it's it possibly marks the last great, if not the best Will Ferrell film, then certainly the last consistently great Will Ferrell film. Because it came after Anchorman and Talladega Nights yeah. and before Step Brothers. Yeah, so he followed this with semi-pro Step Brothers and then the Mark Wahlberg kind of crime ones and it just sort of gets increasingly lame. And then lame they're decreasing. Until yeah, Hunter Watson, which we... <laughs> oh, by, by way of Get Hard, which is the kind of racist homophobic one where, you know, he's he's facing going to prison and the worst possible thing that could happen in prison is he has sex with a man. <laughs> so he'll do anything to stay out of prison. But Blaze of Glory, just as a synopsis, is a, a great plot. It's um, two male figure skaters who are in competition and because they're so precious and over the top, they end up having a fist fight, which gets them disqualified from skating for life. And then the coach of the John Hedder character finds that written a tiny clause in the book of skating, which says that they're only barred from single skating mm. and not from competing in pairs. And they realise that if they compete as a male double pair, they might have a chance of getting back into the Olympics. So it, the whole thing is predicated on this idea that it's normal to watch two men skating around. I have to say, we were just discussing this, there's nothing homophobic in this film. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of throwing a man up in the air and catching him by the crotch. <laughs> but there's no suggestion that, you know, there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I was thinking about this when I watched I, Tonya last year, because... It, the dynamic between them is uh, Will Ferrell plays the sort of rough, 
you know, rock Aerosmith loving kind of, he's a sex addict, I think. And John Hedder plays the very precious, you know, brought up by, he's like raised by a millionaire or something. I think it was some inspired by that. Bit. Was it inspired I think Tonya Harding has a cameo in it. Doesn't Does she? she? There's something crazy like that. Yeah, there's definitely some reference it's obviously to it. the, the, It's obviously the dynamic of Tonya Harding, the sort of girl from the wrong side of the tracks, and Nancy Kerrigan, who is the kind of precious, you know, butter wouldn't melt. Will Ferrell's character is called Chaz Michael Michael. <laughs> they have got great names. He essentially <laughs> skates around to I Love Rock and Roll by just... What I love most about it is how non-skaterly it is. He would not be a, a figure skater. He just, like, stamps on the ice, doesn't he, going backwards. So yeah. his blades are just, like, stamping like he's wearing a pair of wellies and he's clapping above his head. Yeah, yeah they don't really try and, like... Until the very end when they do the sort of... What is it? The on Lotus is, yeah. their, is their like killer move. They don't really try and you know CGI kind of amazing sequences onto them. It follows that classic sort of sports movie mold and allows for some brilliant like training montage sequences. You know where they're in the warehouse like trying to master the moves. And yeah, it also just has. Oh, it, I remember my. I think my favorite bit is when, and they all follow this pattern. I think it, it happens in Talladega Nights as well, probably. When the Will Ferrell character is really down on his luck, he is like in some winter wonderland ice performance. What's it called? What's Grublets it called? on the ice. Grublets on ice. There we go. I knew you'd remember. And he's the evil wizard and he's just he's just drunk off his face and monologuing and like throws up inside his inside. Just his threw heads. up in here, people. <laughs> I just threw up in here, people. That's the reality. That's the reality. That's the reality. <laughs> My favourite scene is when um, John Hedder gets uh, tied up in a male toilet to, to stop him from competing. I think it's John Hedder rather than Will Ferrell. And he can see that the key that's been used to padlock him up has been dumped in a, um, a trash can. And a little boy comes in and gets a shock and, and sort of runs out. But he knocks the trash can over as he does. And a big piece of toilet roll on the holder unfurls in the direction of John Hedder's face. And he realises that if he eats the toilet roll from his tied-up position, if he pulls it in with his mouth, he'll be able to get the key on the other end. So he eats probably 20 foot of dirty toilet roll, and then he manages to get the key and let himself out. But, you know, that's a... I don't know how they came up with that. But that's what we need to see more of in uh, Will Ferrell's Well, well, weirdly, I keep seeing Will Ferrell's name pop up on lots of great stuff that that I've watching and lots of interesting projects. So he's producing or being somehow involved with lots of interesting things like, uh, well, it wasn't perfect, but it was interesting, Vice, the Rumsfeld film, Mm. um, and Succession, this HBO series, which came out last year. But as he's getting more and more involved in interesting things, his own Mm. own sort of output seems Maybe he's tired of his own jokes. Yeah, It feels like that's why this film works so well, is his kind of weirdness had had, was fully realised enough that it kind of sustains it all the way through, and you're saying, oh, that's him doing his thing. And since then, it's been a kind of diluted version with less plot going on. So maybe he just needs to kind of give it up and become a straight actor. But could he ever do that, you know, with those eyes couldn't be a straight actor although he's in everything must go which he's very good in but he's That's still true. still will ferrell in that in the meantime we'll always have blades of glory happy 12th anniversary uh, yeah you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me helen lewis and my co-host stephen bush we're recorded by india bork and produced by nick helton our theme music is by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons why not sign up for a new statesman subscription you will get all kinds of goodies not limited to but including new statesman articles 
and Stephen and Patrick Maguire's The Week Ahead email, which for some reason carries a recipe every week that I have yet to try, but I'm assured are delicious. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.